Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. It's a thick book and it says the Bible on it. Like this thick. It has a brown cover. Pictures, not just words, pictures and words. It has different like kind of feeling of the pages. It's a thing that's about God, and it has all God's words. The Bible is the holy sword. God's word. How God talks to us. You'll hear God a lot. You'll hear Paul. The chapters are in things called books in it, even though it's one big book. There's lots and lots of books about lots and lots of different things, but they're all based on what Jesus did. It tells you how to live your life. And it's got everything in it that's true. The Bible can help you with lots going through your fears and stuff. Even if you know about God and you still want to learn a little bit more about God, you can always look in the Bible. Wow. Too cute. I remember when my kids were that cute. (laughs) They still are sometimes. Sometimes. Hey, listen, welcome to The Exchange. A couple things I want to go over with you um, before we get started this morning. First of all, if you haven't done so, take your phone, check in on Facebook. All of our Facebook check-ins go to do something good. Uh, this month, it's we've never done this one before, but this month, all of our Facebook check-ins plant trees. And so that's a part of one of the projects that they're doing. And so all of our check-ins go to help do that. So check in with us this morning. We'll get that going. Uh, This morning, we're starting a brand new series. It's a brand new series, but a lot of the information in it is not going to seem completely brand new because we've been talking about this almost all year long throughout the year. But the title of this series is Bible 101 for Adults. Okay, So this series is for adults who were introduced to the Bible as children. Okay? This series is also for adults who were introduced to the Bible by other adults who were introduced to the Bible as children. Okay? So either way, most of us, most of us in this room know Bible stories. David and Goliath, that wouldn't shock many of you. You know, there's a kid, he had stone, you know, did that. But very few of us actually know the story of the Bible. That's the understanding of how we get the Bible, how we got the Bible to begin with. And understanding how we got the Bible is almost as important as understanding what is actually in the Bible. See, we probably never really thought about that because we were just given the Bible as kids and we were just told what to believe. But if you understand the backstory, where this actually came from, and if, if we were to sit down and it was a round table discussion right now and, and we were to talk about so where did the Bible actually come from? How many of you could actually could explain where exactly the Bible came from? 
See, a lot of people would say things like, well, it was um, the, there was a canon of scriptures and it was compiled and written, blah, 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 blah. That's not really how it came about. But when you know that, it really sheds light on the stories in the Bible. So growing up as children, was it really important for you to understand where the Bible came from? Probably not. It wasn't that important for me. I didn't really care, and I didn't want to get lost in all those boring details. I wanted the flannel board. Remember? Yeah, I put the flannel board pictures of the ugly Goliath, and they made him so ugly, you know? He, like, had a fat bulldog face. No offense to any of you if you have one of those. But uh, he had this, this look on his face. He was a giant, and they talked about David going and getting five smooth stuff. That was a cool story. Or I really like the story of Samson, right? Samson and Delilah, and, and Delilah tricks him, and she lays him in her lap. And, oh, where did you get your strength? And they tell the story. Those are cool stories. But understanding where the Bible came from really sheds light on these stories. As adults, it's extraordinarily important topic, and it's actually a fabulous story when you start talking about where the Bible came from. Because if you don't know the story of the Bible, then it's easy to discredit the stories in the Bible. So we're going to talk about that today. In fact, there's some of you, maybe in this room, maybe watching online, that have walked away from faith, or maybe you know friends or family members, or you have a son or a daughter who's walked away from the faith. Maybe there's someone watching today, or that you're going to share this with, that has walked away from the faith, and they haven't been to church for a long time. Or maybe you, even sitting in this room, you're sitting next to someone who's, who's thought this thing. Maybe you're the one who's thought this. Maybe your wife, your spouse doesn't even know that you have this thought, but you've just come to this point where I just don't really believe all that anymore. Now, I say that, and it's kind of like a dirty word in church, because I say, I just don't believe all that, and we're like, oh, who wouldn't believe that? Come on, y'all have all believed that, because I've been born and raised my entire life in church, and there are seasons of my life, even in ministry, where I go back and I start studying the Bible, and I go, that doesn't make sense. And you start to question things. And I've been in seasons in my life where I go, I just don't know if I really believe that anymore. And there's people that have walked away from faith for those very reasons. Because if you don't know the story of the Bible, then it is very difficult to continue to embrace the stories in the Bible. So, big problem is this, and we'll talk about this over the next few weeks, but it's the way that we got our Bible, and the way that we got our Bible is not the way the world got the Bible. Two different topics. By the time you got your Bible, it had been chaptered up and versed up, and it had been footnoted, and it had been color-coordinated for some of you, and it had maps in it. Have you seen the Bible? Some of my Bibles in here have maps, and you can fold out these maps, and you can see, you know, here is Syria, and here was Turkey, and here, here was the city of Antioch inside of Turkey, and, and, and you can see all these things, and it had been doctored up and cross-referenced and referenced. And when you got your Bible, it was already done, right? I mean, all of you probably received a finished Bible when you got your Bible. You probably didn't receive an unfinished document. 
But that's not the, the way that the world got their Bible. And the story of how the world got the Bible sheds extraordinary light and gives us a lot of insight on the actual stories in the Bible. My first Bible didn't look exactly like this. I think I've talked a little bit about the first Bible that I really remember using. Now, as a kid, I, I probably had several Bibles coming out of a, a Christian family. You know, you get Bibles and stuff for Christmas and, and all that. But the first Bible I really remember having, it was about this size. It was a green, like a hunter green, more masculine than what you're thinking. It was a hunter green, genuine imitation leather Bible with my name on it in gold print. Did anybody ever have a Bible with your name on it? Huh? Any special people in here? Oh, y'all did? Oh. I thought I was the only one that had my name on my Bible. <laughs> in fact, several of these. See, Jared Brooks and Jared Brooks. And if I ever got a Bible that my name was misspelled, I would take it on missions trips and give it away. <laughs> Seriously. Um, but... The way that I received my Bible was different. And, and as a child, if you received a Bible as a child, you were probably told a lot of the same things that maybe I was. And through Sunday school teachers and through different influences in your life, you're told things like this. The Bible is all true. Believe everything in it. This will guide you for the rest of your life, right? I mean, that's, I, have, I have several Bibles, and a couple of them are at home, that when you open it up, they say almost the same thing, you know, let this book guide you, let this book keep you from sin and all that kind of stuff, because that's what we were told as we were growing up, that it's all God's word for all people at all times, and, and, and we believed it, and why did we believe that? Because it was adults, it was people that we trusted that were telling us this, right? And, and we believed everything adults told us, which is a whole nother sermon series for a whole nother day, right? I catch myself saying things to my sons sometimes or my kids that I'm like, ah, oh, that's a trick. <laughs> I hope they don't really buy that. I'm just fooling with you to get you to do what I'm telling you to do. I know none of you are like that. That's just me and my heathenness. But if you're like me, you grew up having huge respect and having held the Bible in high regards. And many, many, many times I can remember throughout my life and throughout ministry taking the Bible and doing one of those reading plans. I did the, I've done many times the read the Bible in a year plan and uh, where it gives you different verses. And, and now where I'm at, I realize how dangerous those plans are because they mix Old Covenant and New Covenant. And you're, you're sitting there in one day, and you're reading Old Covenant, and then you're going to New Covenant, and then the New Covenant starts contradicting the Old Covenant, but, the, but you haven't been explained how, the difference. And so you're going, ugh, this is so dangerous. <laughs> so I've done those Bible plans. I've done the reading plans where you read the Bible in six months. That's more difficult but I've done them. I've done the reading plan. Actually, I've tried the reading plans that you do in three months. You read the whole Bible through in three months. And I've got to be honest, I did never, ever have the discipline to uh, do all that reading because that was a lot of reading. But I've done all those plans. And the point is, is that in my life, I've always tried to the very best of my ability to have disciplines in my life where I'm constantly, constantly spending time reading the Bible. 
that was important to me, and it's always been, and it's still to this day very important to me to read and study the Bible. Now, the way that I received my Bible and the way that I've read and loved this Bible is not the way that the world received their Bible. And so maybe your situation is different than mine. Maybe you weren't given a Bible as a kid and told to read this Bible, but I was. I, I, I met a few people who were told, don't go read the Bible on your own. Even to believers, don't read the Bible on your own because that's not your job. Your job is to be poured into. It is the pastor or the priest's job to read the Bible, receive God's word, and then impart it and teach it to you. So I know people who are told, don't read the Bible. So I don't know what you, where your background is or what, where you come from, but regardless of how you came about to read or understand or receive the Bible, we came to an understanding based on what we were told about Bible stories that were selectively told to us, usually as kids, sometimes as teenagers, but even as adults. There have been select stories that have been given to us and preached, and that's really the knowledge of how we've come to understand the Bible. So again, regardless of all this, even if you've never read the Bible, if you were never raised in traditional Christianity, you still probably have a perspective or an attitude or a belief about what the Bible is or what the Bible isn't. Regardless of that, we all carry around our childhood perspectives of the Bible and we carry that into adulthood. So a lot of what you probably have been thinking recently about the Bible are the things that you were told at a younger age or you begin to believe at a younger age, and we've carried that through. For some of us, the Bible says it, and that settles it. But for many people now, even those of us that were raised with the Bible, maybe it's just not that simple anymore. Right? Have you thought about that? Because somewhere along the way, someone pointed out to you what else the Bible says. Okay? So you go, have you ever been in a, a really good heated debate with someone and you think, man, I'm going to toast them. I, I have done this many times as a pastor. <laughs> as a youth pastor especially, really arrogant. I'm like, dude, I'm going to toast you with this. The Bible says, and I give them this scripture, and they're like, yeah, but the Bible also says, and they give me a perfectly designed scripture to just trash everything I just said. And I go, well, but the Bible says, and you throw out another one, and then they come back with another one of what else the Bible says that kind of contradicts what I just said. And then you're like, what? And not knowing what I know now, I didn't realize we're battling new covenant theologies and old covenant theologies in two completely separate worlds. And we're taking things so far out of context, it's ridiculous. But back then, we just say, well, the Bible, the Bi and that's the problem is sometimes what else the Bible says. Maybe the parts that they didn't talk about in Sunday school, the parts that they didn't talk about in church. In fact, maybe you've been one of these people, and I have, who read something, and you, you take it to your parents or to your pastor or to your priest or whoever. You, you bring it to their attention because you don't understand why it's saying that because you thought something completely different. And so you, you raise questions 
because you're having a difficult time reconciling what you found in the Bible with the reality that you now live in and in the world that you now live in. And you're an honest person, so you couldn't just look the other way after seeing what you just saw. And so for those reasons, you decided to maybe walk away from the faith. Or perhaps maybe you've just considered walking away. I cannot tell you, and this is the gospel truth, and it's sad to say this, and I even contemplated saying this, but I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in with pastors and youth pastors and leaders where we're talking and we're roundtabling, you know, we're talking, we're encouraging people and kind of, we're usually comparing sizes of churches and all that because that's what matters in a lot of their worlds, but uh, we're, we're battling, you know, telling stories. And then the topic or a specific verse comes up that's really contradictory. I can't tell you how many times I've been in meetings where these pastors or youth pastors will say, oh, yeah, I don't even bring that scripture up. I don't even talk about that scripture. I don't even preach on that scripture. I avoid that topic altogether. That bothers me. It bothers me that as Christians, as the church, that we would have to hide or, or manipulate or steer away from certain scriptures because when you understand the Bible, there's nothing in here to hide. There's nothing in here that's, that's bad or confusing or anything. And all these times where you thought that God was, was just destroying people like crazy, destroying women and children and all that, and, and somebody brings it to your attention, they're like, if God's so loving, why did he do this? If you can explain to them what the old covenant looked like and that God was bound by a promise that he made with them to do what he had to do, that was never his job. That's not what he wanted to do. If you could explain, if you could explain to them that the temple was never God's idea, God never wanted a temple a house of worship he was he was it if you could explain to people God never desired a king he didn't want king Saul he didn't want king David he didn't want king Solomon none of them that was never God's plan so of course there's things in the Bible that just don't quite look right but when you don't understand that and you just start fighting Bible scripture with Bible scripture man it can be so dangerous I understand now where it says the it's like a two-edged sword. Yeah, it's dangerous in the hands of somebody who just wants to destroy people. Because if I just want to destroy, I could almost pick any group of people, and I could destroy them somehow with something in this. Anyway, y'all trying to make me preach, and I was just going to teach a little bit today, and... I broke my belt, so I apologize if I keep pulling up my pants, because <laughs> I really feel like I'm totally sagging up here. I'm going to start rapping in a minute, and we're going to get all, i just feeling it. But listen, over the next few weeks, I want you to be a part of this series, okay? This is going to be important, because we're going to talk about where the Bible came from, and understanding that you can really begin to understand the stories in the Bible. You may be surprised to learn that the story of the Bible, the Bible does not begin in the beginning. The Bible actually begins somewhere right here, towards the end of the middle, okay? So a lot of people want to believe that the Bible begins in the beginning, but the Bible did not begin in the beginning it begins towards the end of the middle. The story of the Bible actually begins towards the end of the middle, and it begins with a first century doctor who was not Jewish. He was actually a, a Greek Gentile, lived in the city of Antioch, and his name was Dr. Luke. 
He was a physician. And Luke actually spent the time necessary to document the events of the life of Jesus. And the reason that he sat down to document the life and the events of Jesus was he had this wealthy, wealthy friend named Theophilus. Everybody say Theophilus. Theophilus was a first century Jesus follower. Theophilus was a Christian. He was a believer. And Theophilus had heard all these stories about Jesus, hadn't actually got to meet him, had all this knowledge of things that Jesus did. He would hear this person talk about this miracle and this person talk about this miracle. But Theophilus wanted to know everything about Jesus and he wanted to know his whole life and and his miracles but just through the little knowledge that he had Theophilus decided I want to be a follower of Jesus this is enough information that I've heard from the people that I've heard it from to make me a believer and so Theophilus became a believer but he wanted an orderly account of the whole story and that's how it started it's like having someone that you really, really, really look up to. Y'all have any heroes? Y'all ever have somebody you really look up to, a hero? And you hear this story about them, or you hear that story, and there's this one article or this one clip. You've seen one thing, and there's all these different stories. But you, what you really want is you really want the whole story. You want to know from the beginning what their parents were like, where they grew up, and where they were raised. Like I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan, okay? I've always loved Michael Jordan my whole life. He's just, he's the man, okay? And I know in Houston, you're not supposed to love Michael Jordan because he's the reason that Houston got their two championships. That's a whole nother story. I'm a Houston Rockets fan, but we thank God that Michael retired for two years so that we could win two. Then he came back and won three more. So I get there's some animosity there. But I'm a Michael Jordan fan. Being a Michael Jordan fan and seeing all this stuff of Michael Jordan as I'm growing up, and he is a champion, a world champion, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know more. So I started reading books, and when the Internet came out, you start looking up stuff, and you start to find out what his childhood was like and what he was like as a kid and how he practiced, how he failed as a kid, how he failed in high school and, and basketball, how he wasn't, you know, all that and a bag of chips. And I wanted to know the whole story. That's where Theophilus is with the story of Jesus. He's like, I want to know everything and so, for the sake of his wealthy friend, Theophilus, Luke decided to sit down and write an orderly account of the events of the life of Jesus. And this is how the document begins. Now, we know this document as the Gospel of Luke, but this is way before it was called a gospel. It wasn't a gospel at the time. This was just a document written simply for a friend named Theophilus, okay? This was not written for the Bible. There was no Bible. There was not this plan to put together a Bible. This was just Luke trying to give an ordered, accurate, detailed account of the life of Jesus. Everybody understanding this? Okay, I'm going somewhere. You're going to get excited later. This was just simply a document. And here's how it started. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That's how he starts off his whole document. 
Okay? So he's saying this. Something has happened that is worth documenting. Okay? There's something that has gone on among us. There's something that has happened in this world, in this generation right now, <laughs> that has happened. And then he goes on and he says, and I'm not the only one trying to write about this. Okay? He says, many have undertaken many have taken on this role there's a lot of people right now that are trying to draw up an account and document so whatever it is that is happening that's such a big deal was a big deal and he says and there's a lot of people trying to write this and you should know this is very unusual because there's not many cases at least historically speaking where there are multiple written accounts of the same event or series of events you get that? Even today, you don't see the multiple people usually writing about just the same, the single event. It's usually one documentation of that event, and, and especially back in this day and age, because in this day and age, it was very, very expensive to document things the way they documented. And so for Luke to say many Many have undertaken this. Many people are trying to do this. He's letting you know it's because something important is happening. Something stands out. And the life of Jesus stands out in that regards to the fact that there's a lot of people trying to document this. He goes on and he says this in verse 3. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, listen, since I I personally have looked into and investigated this. Everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. You know how many people have read scriptures in the book of Luke and they had no idea that Luke was actually written to Luke's friend? Theophilus? I mean, some of you maybe didn't even know that. But Luke wasn't writing the Bible. Luke wasn't writing the gospel of Luke. Luke was writing for his friend everything. And Luke is studying this out. Now, this title, The Most Excellent Theophilus, is what really gives us a lot of the idea because everything back then, they were labeled and known usually by their titles, by their names. And the, most, the way he refers to him as the most excellent Theophilus tells us that this was a very important person. He was a well-known person. He was maybe a merchant or a landowner, but he was a Jesus follower who wanted to know the story in order, and he wanted to know the facts. And so Luke says, I'm going to spend the necessary time, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to write in detailed order the facts. Now, this is really, 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 really ridiculously important. When Luke was writing this document, Luke was not writing the Bible, okay? It's hard to take this out because we're so far into the future. It's hard to think this way, but I need you to just imagine. There's no Bible. There's no plans for a Bible. There's no nothing. There is the, old, there's the law and the prophets, which was what we call the Old Testament, to them, it would have been their equivalent of the Bible. There's the law and the prophets, which is what uh, Judaism was based on, what the Jews lived by, but there's nothing else. And so Luke had no idea that this book that he's writing would ever exist, uh, this, this book would ever exist. He could not even begin to fathom that some 2,000 years later, there would be something included with what other people wrote, with what he wrote, and all put together and bound up in a book 
called the Bible. He had no idea that was going to happen. And so Luke, he's, he's writing this story. And he's not writing this just to be in the Bible. Luke is writing an order of accounts based on eyewitness testimonies. Luke is investigating this. Why does he do this? Because he's wanting to know the story and, and how and why it began. The story of the Bible began. And the reason that we even have a Bible to begin with becomes clear. When the people that followed Jesus found out that clearly Jesus was not who he claimed to be. That's when the Bible really began. Because think about it this way. Jesus claimed way too many things about himself. I mean, he said some things that were wonderful. He did some wondrous things. But Jesus said way too much about himself. And so when Jesus was crucified, now, and if you have a problem with that, there's a lot of other extra biblical uh, literature out there that's not Bible that's literature that can prove that Jesus was a real person on this earth, that can prove Jesus lived throughout history, that can prove Jesus was, was tortured and killed in the, the way that the Bible describes. You can prove all that through history, okay? So with that being said, nobody's disputing that, but in the first century, when Jesus' followers recognized that Jesus had been put to death by Rome, it was game over, there was going to be no story, and there was going to be no Bible. We get that, right? So we're all together. So at this point, when Jesus dies, it's done. There's no Bible in the near future. Luke is documenting something fabulous that happened in the first century, and his story tells us that a man named Joseph of Arimathea, and a lot of you have heard that story, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a part of the Jewish Supreme Court. And another man named Nicodemus, <clears throat> these are two really famous guys in the first century. And within Judaism, everybody knew who they were. These two men went to the cross. They took Jesus' body down off the cross, not because they believed he was the Savior of the world, not because they believed that one day they would get their names written in a book. They took Jesus' body down off the cross because they had huge respect for the man that he was, and they were so, so disappointed that he was dead it's game over everything that this guy had been claiming to be jesus said way too much about himself and now it's done they take his body and they're putting him in the tomb in fact it says luke says this i thoroughly investigated and here's what happened luke investigated this Joseph of Arimathea and his servants, they took the body down. He says this in Luke 23, 53. Then he took the body, he took it down, talking about the body of Christ, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. Luke gives us a lot of detail, and he gives us a lot of detail. I'm just maybe assuming a little bit here. Maybe I'm reading into this story, but he gives us a lot of detail because he's a doctor. He's a detail-oriented person. I can imagine that he is a, a very melancholy type of character. And I say that with the utmost respect to all of you melancholies out there. As I know several of you out there, melancholies are very detail-oriented people, okay? There's four different categories of personalities. Most of you know this. There's sanguine, phlegmatic, melancholy, and choleric. Uh, sanguines, which is my, my 
my number one. Sanguines want to do everything the fun way. Okay, we want to have fun. Clerics want to do everything my way. Uh, melancholies want to do everything the right way by the book. And then phlegmatics don't care just as long as they get it done and somebody wants to help, we'll just do it. Phlegmatics go with the flow. So I imagine Luke to be pretty melancholy here, pretty detail-oriented. He's writing a detail orderly account of the story and Luke goes on he says this in verse 55 the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes why because they were going to come back and they were going to re-embalm Jesus's body now why would they come back and re-embalm this body I talked about this like this last month probably because they expected Jesus to do what dead people do stay dead right that's what they expected that's why they were preparing to do what they were about to do they expected him to stay dead that's it and this is so important but it was in this moment in this moment right here now think about this Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they take the body down, they wrap it, put it in the, in the tomb, and, and, and Luke has given us details. This is cut in the rock, and no one had ever lived in this tomb before, had, had ever been buried in this tomb before. Uh, and, and then there's these women that are with Jesus, that came with Jesus from Galilee. They go back, and they prepare to embalm his body. They're going to embalm his body. Now, at this point, there are no Christians. There are no Jesus followers. There is no church. There's no ecclesia, okay? There's no hope. No hope. You know, I'm trying to paint a picture, and it's hard for me to do because I'm on this side of the cross, so I see it differently now, but I'm trying to get you to go back with me. There's no hope. There's just brokenhearted women and disillusioned disciples who are scared for their own lives because they were connected before this guy died. And probably everything this guy said before he died and now he's dead has really put us in a lot of danger. Had they known at this moment what they knew before, they would have said, Jesus, don't say all this stuff because when you die, it's going to come back on us. You know? But there was part of them that believed maybe he, he was who he said he was. Then he died. That was out the window. So there's Rome, this eternal city, and clearly all the gods of Rome, one. And then you have the temple and all the leaders of the temple in which Jesus followed and he was a part of, kind of. Clearly they won. And between the temple and Rome, the Jesus movement was crushed out of existence. It was done and gone. And if it had ended right there, there would be no the Bible. And there would be no Christians and there would be no church. There would be no, as what we see it now as the Old Testament, it would have just stayed the law and the prophets. And there would be no account by Luke considering and looking into the details of Jesus' life because it wasn't nearly as necessary when he was dead and gone. Obviously, everything that he said was not true. Jesus claimed way too much about himself. But this is important to note. Man, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about this. Luke documented the life of Jesus because the story of Jesus didn't end on a Roman cross.
If the story had ended there, there would be no story. Luke tells us that the reason he was a Jesus follower and the reason that Theophilus was a Jesus follower in the first century is because Jesus was seen alive. The reason Theophilus followed Jesus and decided to become a Jesus follower is Jesus was seen alive. And once he came back to life, his followers came out of hiding. And what they did is they went to the streets of Jerusalem. They went to Jerusalem and they faced down the very people that arrested Jesus. They faced down the very people that had Jesus arrested and taken to Pilate for sentencing. They went and they faced all those very same people, even though they knew that doing that was going to put their very own life in danger. They went. Why? Because they saw Jesus alive. When Jesus was alive, it changed everything. No longer was there not going to be a story. The story was just starting. It was just getting started. Here's one sentence from one sermon that Luke documents. And now remember, Luke is trying to document everything in great, great detail. And so... He documents this, and this is part of a, a conversation that Peter, one of Jesus' followers, is having. And he, Peter says this to Caiaphas. And Luke writes this in Acts chapter 2, verse, 20, uh, verse 32. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we, all of us, there's a lot of us, we are all witnesses of it. We saw him. We saw him. We didn't read about it. We didn't hear about it. We saw it. And the Jesus movement, the church, the ecclesia was birthed. Mm. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that awesome? But listen, there's still no the Bible. How can there be a church without the Bible? You mean that they started a church without the Bible? So what were the Constitution and bylaws? And how did the border of elders allow this to happen? There's got to be order. And if there's no Bible, there can be no organized religion. They start this church. And Luke goes on and to document what happens about 30 years following the resurrection. He documents a book. And in our New Testament, this book, we call it Acts. Or the Acts of the Apostles. But you see this, Luke knew Peter. He knew they, they like had a relationship. There are conversations between he and Peter that are documented. Luke knew John. There are several of their conversations that were documented. Luke knew James, the brother of Jesus. They all knew each other at this moment. Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul all around the Mediterranean basin, planting churches, and he documents it. He documents the rise of the church and how it became, started becoming a Gentile church. It became more and more and more Gentile and less and less and less Jewish. Luke documents that. And in this movement called the church would ultimately shape Western civilization. In fact, the most secular of secular historians will tell you and acknowledge the fact that Christianity shaped and greatly impacted all of Western civilization. But here's the cool and interesting thing that you need to know. And Luke admits it right up front. Hey, I'm not the only one that's documenting this Okay, 
Christianity shaped Western civilization. But I'm not the only one explaining this to you. Remember, he said this in verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And the question that we all should wrestle, I, sp I think especially if you've walked away from the faith or you've walked away from Christianity, and listen, I can understand that because if I heard your story of why, I, could probably, I would probably say, who could blame you? But there's something that you need to know. There's something that you need to wrestle with. And there's a reason that I think you should come back to the faith. Especially if you're watching online. And there's this. Why so many? That's the question that we should wrestle with. Why so many? Why were there so many people that felt compelled to write and document the events that happened in the first century? I mean, why, isn't it kind of weird that so many people tried to document this? I mean, it, like I said earlier, it was so expensive to document the way that they were documenting. And yet there's many people that are coming and trying to document that. They felt obligated to write it. There must have been something historical that happened. There must have been something that was huge, never seen or never done before, right? And the answer is undeniable. And it's this, something extraordinary had happened. That's why so many people came to document now, something extraordinary was written that would come later, but something extraordinary had happened, okay? They weren't basing everything off of what was written, but they were basing things off of what actually happened, something that must be preserved, because after all, Peter and the boys and all the followers of Jesus, they're starting to get old now. All these guys that hung out with Jesus, at this point, they're starting to get old. And so their lives are being threatened. And so somebody has to start to document this. And so they start setting down and they start dictating their accounts of what happened. In fact, Peter, a lot of y'all remember Peter, the apostle Peter, he dictated his account to a young Greek man named John Mark. And we know this from a a second century writer named Papias, Papias tells us that the gospel, what we know as the gospel of Mark, came from the lips of Peter. Not everybody knows that. Some people have heard that. So, so we're finding out that Peter sets down with John Mark, and Mark records this. We find it in the gospel of Mark. A lot of people believed, especially a lot of historians and theologians, believed that Peter was probably illiterate. That's why he didn't write his own accounts. He wrote uh, different things and letters, but he was probably pretty illiterate. But obviously, he was a brilliant fisherman. And he gave this story to Mark, which later people would call the gospel. But right now, it's just a document. But if you read the gospel of Mark, what we call the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark is short, and it's action, 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 action. Okay, have you ever noticed the difference? You read the other gospel, the gospel of Mark kind of stands out. It's short, it's action, 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 action. It's quick and to the point, it's bottom line based. Maybe sounds like maybe a fisherman or something wrote it. I'm just saying, no offense to Pastor Eddie as a fisherman over there. You know, fisherman stories are, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But John Mark, he's no mystery to the history. John Mark traveled with the Apostle Paul. John Mark knew Luke. He was friends with Luke. 
And this document was written in, the, in about the 50s, okay? This is about 20 years after the resurrection. Luke had several people, Luke said several people sat down and started documenting this extraordinary event. So we know Peter sat with Mark, and he started documenting it. What about Matthew? Matthew was one of them. Matthew, we call it the Gospel of Matthew, but way before it was called the Gospel of Matthew, it was just a document that Matthew was writing. And, and a document addressing, Matthew was addressing more specifically first century Jews. Now, if you read the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, you'll understand Luke was really writing more to Gentiles. He was addressing more Gentiles. Matthew, you see in his Gospel, he's addressing first century Jews and he's saying this, trust me, trust me. He's talking to all the Jews who've lived their whole life based on the law and the prophets. The part of the Bible that for some of us is confusing because we see God do some kind of crazy things. And we see these crazy weird kings that God blessed and anointed turn kind of weird and crazy and all this. So they lived their whole life based on the law and the prophets. And now Matthew, he's addressing the Jews. He's going, listen, listen, listen. He's saying, listen, Jesus is who he claims to be. I'm telling you, believe him. And what Matthew does that, that Mark, Luke, and John really don't do as much is Matthew leverages Old Testament scripture, the law and the prophets. So when I say Old Testament, back then it was to them it was the law and the prophets. He leverages Old Testament scripture after Old Testament scripture after Old Testament scripture after Old Testament scripture over and over and over throughout his document. And he says this, listen, all these things that were prophesied, Jesus fulfills them. He is all these things that, that we've heard about our whole life and for generations. Everything is pointing to this guy. And so Matthew is trying to convince the Jews, Jesus is the Messiah that we've waited for our whole entire lives. He's who he claims to be. The church fathers, that's what we call this group of people that came after the disciples in the first century and early second century. The, first, the church fathers indicated that the book of Matthew was actually written in Hebrew. They have a copy, an original copy of the book of Matthew written in Hebrew, which makes a lot of sense because Matthew was addressing the Jews. So it was written in Hebrew, but then all of a sudden it's translated into Greek. Now I want you to get this. The version that we have of the book of Matthew today is a Greek version. So why would a Hebrew document be translated into Greek? Maybe because Greek was the language of the Eastern Empire. Because at that point, that was the powerhouse of the world. So it was translated in their language because Matthew's message was not simply a message for the Jews. It was a message eventually for all the peoples of the world, the entire world. So you've got Mark. You got Luke and you got Matthew. All these guys, they sat down. Luke told us that a lot of people were writing, documenting these accounts. And then all of a sudden you've got what we call the Gospel of John. Everybody say John. Again, John wasn't thinking Bible when he wrote this. He wasn't thinking, oh man, all my friends are getting on this and they're going to. They're all going to be a part of that book that's going to live for thousands. They're all going to be a part of that bestseller book for generations. And man, I got to get in on this action for my family and all the royalties. 
That's not what he was thinking. In fact, when John decided to write this book, he just wanted to write it out of his experience of his personal experience he had with Jesus. So if you were addressing John back then, you might say, John, why do you want to write this book? You're old. Because when John started writing the book of John, he was old. And they say, John, why are you writing this book? I mean, you're old. There's, everybody else is writing it. Everybody else is talking about giving de- I mean, Luke, I mean, you know Luke has got all the details. There's nothing you could put in there that Luke didn't already talk about. So why are you writing this? But this is fascinating. And regardless of where you are in your faith and regardless of what your church experience has been, I hope you lock onto this right here. John, in the first century, again, he's not thinking Bible. That's the furthest thing from his mind. He's just thinking a document expressing his life and and details, his experiences with Jesus. He writes it, and he says this. John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. Jesus performed many other signs that were not secret. They're out there. Everybody knows them. And they weren't recorded in this book. They were, they were done in front of all his disciples. And when, he said, when John says that, he's not referencing the twelve. He's referencing the hundreds of disciples that followed Jesus all throughout the land from city to city and town to town, all the way up to the crucifixion and those that came after the crucifixion. John's talking about them. And he says, and they're not referenced in this book. When he says this book, he's not talking about this book. He's talking about this book. The document he's writing. That's what he's addressing and he goes on, he says, but these things, but these are written. The ones that I have chosen to put in there, these are written. In other words, as I face the end of my days, I want you to understand this. My faith is still intact. Okay, I'm not wavering in my faith. Not based on what I've seen around me or what I've heard somebody else say, but based on what I saw with my own personal eyes. And I say this because I want to speak to future generations. You read the book of John. This is what he's saying. He says, I want to speak to future generations. I want them to know what I saw. I want them to know what my hands touched. I want them to know what I experienced He says, but these are written that you, everybody say you. Who's the you? The you is you. It's me. It's we. See, there's a lot of places in the Bible we talk about historical contextual hermeneutics. There's a lot of things written in the Bible that weren't necessarily to you, written to you is written for another group of people. John is saying, I wrote this for future future generations that anyone who would stumble across this document, would understand I'm talking to you. Anybody who would stumble across my writings, and this is awesome because when John is writing his story, he's taking all this time to write the story. Now listen, he has no idea if this story is going to survive a day. He's not sure if his, his document, this story that he's writing, is going to survive two weeks, two months, much less 2,000 
years. And even, even as he's writing this document, he has no idea that just a few hundred years after that, it's going to be wrapped together with other ancient, ancient documents, and they're going to call it the Bible. He has no idea what this document is about to see. He wasn't thinking Bible. He's thinking for future generations. And he says, I want what I experienced to be shared. I want you to know what changed my life. I want you to know what gave me hope when everything around me was hopeless. This document was dictated from an eyewitness. Luke felt the need to record it and share it. Matthew felt the need to record it and share it. John Mark felt the need to record it and share it. And so this is what John says. But these are written that you may believe. Again, that begs a question. Believe what? What is it, John, that you want me to believe? You're writing all this stuff. This is so important. You want me to believe something. What is it that you want me to believe? Now, maybe it's possible that somebody has left the faith or considered walking around away from the faith. Or maybe you've heard something or you're just not interested. But for the most part, when people walk away from faith, it's the bottom line is this. I just don't believe it anymore. And the question that I hope you wrestle with and that John wants you to wrestle with is what is the it that you don't believe anymore? What is the it that you don't believe? Because if you walked away from faith or you've considered walking away from faith, what is the it? And John, not the Bible, not the Bible tells us, John, he tells us what the it is that really matters. And this is so important. I hope you grab hold of this right here. He says, but these are written that you may believe what? That Jesus is is in fact the messiah he is in fact the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name that's the it john is saying regardless of what you've heard regardless of what you've believed regardless of what your experience is in in your life or in christianity john is saying that's it that's the it that's it, and that's the only it that matters. And the implications of that statement in this document of the Gospel of John are staggering. And here's why I say that. Because if, the, if John's account, which is the life of Jesus, listen, if John's account is all that you have, John's account is all that you need. Pastor Jared, did you just say, I did just say that. You're telling me I don't need the whole, I'm, just, I'm not saying you don't need the whole Bible, but I'm saying if for some reason you were stranded on a desert island and you could only have one book of the Bible, John is saying everything that you need is written in my account. It is all right there. He's saying I wrote it in such a way that if this is it, if this is the only message that you stumble across, if this is the only document that you ever read, I wrote it in such a way that you would know through my story that this is enough for you to have life. God has done something in the world, John is saying, on behalf of you. Who's the you? Everyone 
in the world that possibly could stumble across this document. He's saying God stopped time and he did something on your behalf. John interrupts this conversation with Nicodemus and he writes this famous, he interprets this famous verse that most of us have memorized. He says something like this. For God so loved the whole, what? The whole entire world. This is not a mistranslation. He's saying it world means what you think it means. He's saying God loves the whole world, the Jewish world, the Greek world, the Roman world, the pagan world, the barbarian world. God loved the whole world so much that he sent his only son. And I know that. And John's saying, I know that because I stood eyeball to eyeball with the man. I looked him dead in his eyes. I watched him do things. I seen him do, I heard him say things that would blow your mind. And that God came in the form of a man. He so loved the entire world so much that he gave himself. That whoever would believe, whoever would trust in him, would not perish. In other words, would not be lost to God, but would have eternal life. Extraordinary life that starts now. And we've talked about this. That word eternal life, aeonios zoe. To enjoy real life right now, to have true life and worthy of the name, active, blessed, endless kingdom life of God right now. If you'll believe in him. John says, if this is all you've ever heard, this is all you ever need. Isn't that unbelievable? For decades, generate three, four hundred years, all they would do is they would direct people to read the gospel of John. Did you know that? Even... Even me as a youth pastor, for years and years and years, when, when young people would come in and they're just starting to, to find their relationship with God, the first thing I always did, because they always say, okay, well, I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. What should I start reading, Pastor Jerry? I'm going to start at the front. And I'm like, no, don't do that. That'll mess you up. Don't do that. Well, where, do you, where should I start? I'm going to start the New Testament. Ah, I mean, that's better. Start with John. That's what I tell them. Why? Because... If John's account is all you have, it's all you need. He wrote it in such a way that you have everything right there. It's about 270 years before this book is ever assembled. So that brings us up to about the end of the first century. The end of the first century, there's still no the Bible but yet there are thousands and thousands of Christians, Jewish Christians, Greek Christians, Roman Christians, Christians in other parts of the world. And at the end of the first century, there are thousands and thousands of Christians, but there are dozens and dozens of copies of these documents that have started floating around about the life and the works of Jesus. They're meticulously copied and bundled together. Did you know at, during this time period, some people had one gospel. Most people didn't even have a copy, period. But in, in certain areas and towns, some towns had a gospel, one gospel, what we would call a gospel. Back then it wasn't a gospel. Some, some towns, villages had two gospels. Some villages and towns had three gospels. Very few had all four. Some had parts of one gospel and parts of another gospel. But can you imagine to first century followers of Christ and second century followers of Christ, can you imagine how valuable these documents must have been? Unbelievable. 
I mean, maybe you'd, you'd lived and you'd heard all these stories growing up about Jesus and about all the things that Jesus did, and you and your family were followers of Jesus, and then all of a sudden somebody shows up in your town and they break out a copy of the book of John. You had only heard stories. Maybe your grandmother, she was there when Peter was preaching, when he was on the streets and he was preaching, and, and your grandparents heard what Peter said, so you grew up hearing these stories. You, you grew up with them uh, recalling to the best of their ability some of these stories of what they remember Peter said. And then all of a sudden somebody shows up to your town and they've got some of these letters from Peter. An actual, what Peter actually wrote. Can you imagine? This is 200 years before there were ever one of these. These precious documents were important. And back then, they were actually considered valuable and reliable. From the very beginning, they were considered sacred and inspired. And not too long after that moment, these four documents specifically that we call the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John became considered sacred scripture. These were just documents. Luke was just writing for Theophilus. And it became sacred. It became life. Gospel means truth. The truth of Luke became life to us. Now, 250, I'm, I'm wrapping up here. I know I'm going long, but y'all kept making me laugh. So 270, 250 years before there was ever one of these. Isn't that amazing that the church began to move and grow? Now, let me catch you up. The Roman Empire, the empire was very suspicious of Christians. And the reason the Roman Empire was very suspicious of Christians was not because of what Christians believed, but it was actually because of what Christians didn't believe that made the Romans very suspicious. Because, see, the Christians believed that their God was the Messiah. The Roman Empire, they didn't care who you worshipped. They just wanted you to worship all of their gods. That you want, they wanted you to recognize their gods. That was against the Christians because the Romans, they were okay if every once in a while you would present a grain offering acknowledging Caesar and a grain offering acknowledging their gods. Then they were okay. Christians couldn't do that. They didn't believe Caesar was their Lord. Caesar, back in these days, the, the Roman Empire was divided in the East and the West, and this is history for you. The Eastern empire eastern half of the empire the emperor was his title was caesar and that was basically junior emperor so there were two emperors the western side that that emperor's title was augustus so there are two so in this time period they're wanting you to acknowledge caesar as lord as your lord and christians had a hard time with it so that became a big big deal they were, Romans were, saying, Romans were saying, you can keep your gods, but we need you to, to keep all the gods. We need you to keep the regional gods, the barbarian gods, the weather gods, the sex gods. We need you to acknowledge all the gods, and we need you to acknowledge Caesar. They wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. So all of a sudden, they had a problem because Rome, in the words of uh, Stevie Wonder, were very superstitious. And so if something bad happened, 
then they believe that the gods were angry with them. If it was good, then they believe that the gods were pleased. So if something bad was happening, the God, because gods showed, the gods of Rome showed their pleasure or displeasure through famine, through rain, through victories, through wars, through rivers, all that. So if things weren't going good, they had to blame somebody. Who did they blame? They started blaming the Christians. It became the Christian's fault that the Roman gods must be angry because the Christian world started growing and multiplying like crazy. There's a early sec- a late 2nd century, early 3rd century Christian leader, an author named Tertullianus, and he wrote this famous statement, and it kind of gives you a glimpse of what Christians were up against. He says this, If the Tiber, and he's talking about the Tiber River, if the Tiber floods the city, or if the Nile refuses to rise so that it can water their crops, or if the sky withholds its rains, if there's an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. So he's telling us that back then, if there was anything problem with the, if the crops weren't growing, if something was happening, blame the Christians, kill them. They were blamed for everything. It culminated in the year 303 with Emperor Diocletian. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up fast. Hang with me. Diocletian was the emperor, and he saw this problem. He saw that everything bad that's going on in Rome has to be the Christian's fault. So he, he wrote an, an official edict that declared every single house of Christian worship had to be destroyed. All the bishops had to be rounded up, and they either had to make, they had to renounce their faith and offer an offering to Caesar as their Lord and Savior, or be put to death. Not only that, he, in this edict, he wrote that all Christian literature and documents must be turned in, and they had to be burned and destroyed. Period. That was it. And if you refuse to do that, and this is pretty graphic, and I'll keep it as PG as I can, but before they killed you, they would kill your spouse and then your kids in order of age in front of you, and then they kill you for hanging on and hiding these Christian documents. Woo, something was really important about this little document that Luke wrote for Theophilus. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Christians lost their lives trying to protect fragments of Matthew's little document and Luke's little document. Some of these letters of Peter that he wrote, they're hiding them. And the reason that those valuable documents survived the early third and fourth centuries were because there was confidence in these documents that they must be true. Something in them must be so true that people gave their lives protecting them. During the early persecution, Christianity finally began to spread, and there came political change. It actually, I don't have all this in my notes, but in 324, Constantine the Great, and you could go study this out, it's really cool history. Constantine the Great, he became the solo emperor, because in 313, Constantine the Great was actually, um, he was the western emperor, so he was Augustus. And the eastern emperor, Caesar, was um, Linnaeus. And Linnaeus and Constantine together wrote a law giving everyone in Rome freedom to worship who they wanted. In 324, Constantine became the solo 
emperor. So there's no longer an east and a west. He became the first solo emperor. And what he did was he gave Christians free worship. The first thing Constantine did was he gave Christians back all their literature. He started giving them all this stuff that was supposed to be destroyed. He started giving it back to them. And he gave them freedom. So for the first time in history, Christians could come out and they could sit down with other believers. These theologians, these philosophers, these writers, these editors, they begin to come out and they begin to sit with one another and they begin to talk and they begin to take and they, they said, you know what, we need to take and put Luke's letter, Luke's document, man, powerful. He did all this investigative reporting and study. We need to put that one and what Matthew wrote, which is powerful, and we need to put what John wrote. Oh, my God. Man, wow. And what John Mark wrote through through Peter and all these letters that Peter wrote and, and Timothy's letters, and we need to put them together. Oh, man, and that is the new. That is the new. And all of a sudden, there was Tabiblia, the Bible. The first Bible. Constantine converted there's really some cool stories if you want to go read history. I mean, I, I could preach several messages just on this time of history. It's so powerful. But, oh, there's so, so, so much more to the story. And we're going to pick that up next week. It's powerful. So understanding the story of the Bible really helps you embrace the stories in the Bible. Luke and John and Matthew, they weren't writing to get something. Nobody sat down with them and said, guys, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking about putting one big book together that's full of a bunch of little books. And so I want each one of you to write me a little book about, you know, what you saw. That's not the way it worked. There was something so powerful that shook planet Earth. The God of this world showed up in human form and they called him Jesus and you saw it and you saw it and you wrote about it and for over 2,000 years we've been able to hang on to this it's important we know that you know Helps us get all the rest of it. Stand with me this morning. It's important that we understand who we are. Okay? And it's time that the church stop hiding behind. The, well, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. No. John wrote this. It's not the Bible. There was no the Bible. John said this. And it's important to understand why John said this. Amen? So we're going to continue this next week. And I want you... To be a part of it, because it's, it's going to get really, really interesting and, and powerful and good. But before we do that, I'm going to pray a blessing over you. Father, I just ask right now, God, that in this season of our life, God, in this moment, I just pray for knowledge and wisdom and understanding, God, that we can become good Bereans and that we can begin to study and look deeper into our Bibles and the history of our Bibles and in understanding the whole entire Bible. 
God, I, I thank you so much for this whole thing. I believe in the whole thing. And I thank you for it. But I thank you more than that for an understanding of what this word means to me. I thank you for an understanding of, of the seasons and the times of who certain things were written to. I thank you, Jesus, that your life is documented in detailed accounts so that I can understand your great love for me. So that I can understand why I have the greatest life I could possibly have. Why you've called me blessed. Why you've called me a son. Why you've, you've, you've made me a joint heir with Jesus. Meaning I possess everything. I have access to everything he has access to. And it has nothing to do with my title as a pastor. God, but every person in this room, you gave them that same authority and that same uh, priority in your kingdom. And people that are not even in this room right now, people that are not even hearing this word right now, you've given them that same authority. They just don't know it. God, and so my job as a pastor this morning is not to go around and, and scream and, and shout. and whatever. My job is to help open people's eyes to the fact that you've already done it. You've already done it. And I thank you for that, Jesus. Amen. We were singing that song this morning, Reckless Love, and Jay, Pastor Jonathan, was talking about the the words and stuff, and I thought, man, I have this really bad problem right now. I, I change a lot of words and a lot of our songs just for me, but we're singing that song, there's no shadow you won't light up, and mountain you won't climb up. I sing it all in past tense. There's no shadow you didn't light up. There's no mountain you didn't climb up already. There's no wall you haven't already kicked down. There's no lie you haven't already tore down for me. The reason I say that is because, just like Jay was saying, I know who I am. He's already done all that for me. I'm not waiting for him to come find me. I'm found. I'm found. And, and we sing that more for people that don't know they're found. They're already found. He's found them. They're not hiding. They can't hide. Man, I'm gonna, I got to stop. I got to stop. Y'all going to be here for supper tonight if I don't stop. Hey, listen, thank you so much for being here. Um, if you want to support the church, thank you so much for your offerings that helps us just pay the bills. Uh, you can do that by uh, texting to give. You can do it, drop a, uh, some money in the offering box. You can pay online, whatever. It doesn't matter. We just thank you so much just for your faithfulness and, and supporting our ministry. And you know what? I promise you that every day this week I will pray over you. And how many of you promised to pray over me? Thank you. Now, if you're lying, I will hunt you down. I'm just playing. God, blessings over every person in this place. God, I just pray favor in everything that we do, everything we say, favor over our families right now. In Jesus' name, and if you receive that, say a big amen. 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 God bless you and have an awesome day.